Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists. Empowerment. Talk Radio. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? I am a revolutionary. It's about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately... Our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One broadcast broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. When it comes to race, we've overcome quite a lot in this country. Slavery. Civil war. Segregation. We've even elected a black man to the highest office in the land. Change has come to America. But as tempting as it might be to celebrate these things as signs that we've entered into a period of colorblind post-racial harmony. We have to admit that we're moving forward in this world and that race issues are moving to the periphery. 
I think those problems are largely behind us. The fact is, racial inequalities still exist. Today, there are more African Americans in prison or jail, on probation or parole, than were enslaved in 1850, a decade before the Civil War began. And racial bias still affects the way we view others. Uh, I want you to check out this protester. See the sign he's waving there? The president made to look like an African witch doctor. And when we fail to recognize that, we not only continue to do an injustice to people of color, we end up doing damage to white folks as well. I think the role, well, as a white person, it's hard for me to counsel black folks on what to do, and I think uh, it would be largely inappropriate when my own group, white folks, have so much blindness around racism in the system, as Charles said, both historically but also contemporaneously. I think for us, we need to also step back from the anger and the frustration that a lot of white folks feel when we look and we see what we consider to be irrational violence in the streets and say, wait a minute, what's going on? What's behind this? For most white folks, we don't really have a long understanding of the history of how law enforcement has been used in black and brown communities. And if you don't have that appreciation, you don't have that historical memory, things like this seem irrational to you. They seem to be irrational. If you're privileged, after all, if you're the top dog, if you have all the advantage, you're constantly afraid of who's gaining on you. You're constantly afraid of who's coming to take what you have. Got to close the border. They're coming to take our stuff. We got to worry about terrorists. They're coming to take our stuff. We got to get them before they get us. Preventative war. We got to stop them. That's what privilege will do for you because those who have it are constantly anxious. A study in June of 2004 in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which received very little attention, found that in the United States, the rates of anxiety disorder, depression, and substance abuse-related mental disorders are twice the global average, five times the rate in Nigeria. How is it that the most powerful and privileged people on earth can have so much more anxiety? Winter in America. A person can have black friends and still view other black people differently than their friends. I mean, to believe that, that being close to black folks somehow insulates you from a charge of racism would be like heterosexual men saying, I can't be sexist, I date women. I'm married to one. I can't possibly be a sexist. I mean, who would say that, right? apparently have according to the research that says that if we talk about race that's when we're going to make people of color think that we're racist the irony of that is the research actually tells us that people of color already assume that we probably are whether or not we talk like opening our mouth is not the thing that makes people of color assume that we might be racist what makes them assume that we might be racist is that we live in the United States of America. No one ever said that George Zimmerman was the kind of, of, of completely out-of-control, blind bigot who hated black people, let alone all black people. That's not what racial profiling requires. Racial profiling doesn't require that you hate everyone in the group. It doesn't require that you hate anyone at all. 
All it requires is that you have certain biases, whether they're conscious or subconscious, which enter your mind in a specific situation. They won't be triggered in every situation. Those cops in New York who do stop and frisk, racial profiling on the streets of New York City, they can engage in decent and kind interactions with black folks and Latino folks in other settings. But in that setting, when the stereotype gets triggered, as it seems clear it was in the case of George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin, that's when the bias comes out and all your black friends, all your girlfriends, all the black sports stars you love, all the black music you listen to, all the black children that you mentor, no longer is what's controlling what's going on in your brain. It's when the prejudices begin to take that over. Yes, that all of the healers have been killed. And so in a sense, people of color have learned over a lifetime that sometimes it's easier to just shut down, you know? It's easier to just not talk about it all rather than be accused of exaggerating or making a mountain out of a molehill or playing the race card, which is a nice and tidy phrase that white folks came up with 10 or 15 years ago when we decided we'd rather not deal with the reality that other people live, you see. So we'd rather just put it off to exaggeration seeing things, playing a race card, which, by the way, if you don't learn anything else from this conference, learn at least this. If we actually are going to claim that race is a card, we ought to at least be honest about which card that is. I don't know how many of you play poker, but I can assure you that if race is actually a card, it has all the weight and power of the two of diamonds, which is to say not much. Right? That is a pretty weak card. It doesn't actually win any hand in any game that you're playing. Right? So the idea that people of color would exaggerate the problem of racism so as to somehow get somewhere in larger society or win an argument with those of us who are white doesn't make a lot of sense when you realize that every time people of color bring it up, even when it's completely valid and legitimate, they get shut down. They get ignored. They get accused of exaggerating. So it's for white folks, the research says, we have a fear as well that keeps us from wanting to talk about race around people of color. Not the same fear that people of color have. It's not the one about being marginalized or having our beliefs minimized, let alone being retaliated against. That's not what we're concerned about, according to the research. Now, what's interesting about this is that the presumption that somehow a lot of whites apparently have, according to the research, that says that if we talk about race, that's when we're going to make people of color think that we're racist. The irony of that is the research actually tells us that people of color already assume that we probably are. Whether or not we talk, like opening our mouth is not the thing that makes people of color assume that we might be racist. What makes them assume that we might be racist is that we live in the United States of America a country in which we have been conditioned from birth, generation in and generation out, to have certain racial assumptions and stereotypes. People of color are not being particularly judgmental or harsh when they make this assumption. They're just saying, for God's sake, you grew up here, we grew up here, we internalized some of this nonsense against ourselves, so we pretty much assume that you did too. That's all folks of color are saying. Right? is that if you grow up in a society where race and racism and racial prejudices and stereotypes have been embedded in the very fabric of the community, what are the odds that you escaped that? People of color would tell you the odds are zero. Right? So the idea that we're going to keep our mouths shut and somehow keep people of color from thinking we have racial bias is sort of a fool's errand because they've already started out with the assumption that, you know, Probably that's part of our character. Again, ironically, it is precisely at the moment when white folks don't want to talk about race and we shut down around it, even though it's the elephant in the room, it's precisely at that moment that we most confirm in the eyes of people of color that the reason we're being quiet is because we have something to hide. Oh, no, it's 
So at that very moment when race is the obvious issue and we don't talk about it, black and brown folk look at us and go, yes, see? And if you don't have that appreciation, you don't have that historical memory, things like this seem irrational to you. They seem to be irrational to to mistrust police because in our communities, the police are the folks that get your cat out of the tree or come and help you, officer-friendly, Barney Fife on Andy Griffith. That's not the experience in most black and brown communities. So number one, those of us who are white need to study and learn and learn to listen. It makes me physically ill to know, and I do know, that Charles Blow, who I know and whose son, or one of whose children I met a few years back, that he has to have a conversation with his son about how to dress, how to talk, how to walk, how to act in the world that I would never have to have with a son of mine. And he has to do that no matter who his daddy is, no matter the fact... And as long as those of us who are white can walk through this world, walk through the streets, never fearing that we are going to be the sum total of other people's anxiety, there's a problem in this country that we have to be honest about and have to confront. This is our common ground. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you in conversation with Tim J. Wise. And now, Janice Graham. And good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground. Coming into the program this week uh, on Saturday, December 6th, if you haven't checked your calendar as of yet. Um, we are coming with the word insidious. We acknowledge, we want to acknowledge before we begin this broadcast tonight, we acknowledge our re-injuries uh, this week on the failure of a New York grand jury to indict in the case a police officer who killed Eric Garner. We also want to say farewell, or we did this week say farewell, and today, to a great giant of our struggle, Marion Barry, who today in Washington, D.C., was celebrated, and a farewell to a small symbol of all black families, a son, a young son, vulnerable to Mia Rice at 12 years old, killed at the hand of a Cleveland, Ohio police officer. Also, before we begin the broadcast uh, program, uh, we want to um, remind you of what something James Baldwin said about these re-injuries that we experienced this week, and that is that we cannot afford despair. Even reading the Atlantic article this week, I don't know if you did read it, about 
fatalism. We cannot be fatal, fatalists in the eye of this new era of struggle because we have proven over and over our ability to survive. We are a people of love. We are a people of rage. We are people of hope. And for a moment, we could not breathe. This is our common ground. Thank you for being with us. And for those of you who are listening and you would like to join our chatters in our chat room, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash, that's to the right, OCG, and join in the discussion during this broadcast. We came in we uh, with a trailer from the film White Like Me. For years, Tim Wise's best-selling books and spell-binding lectures have challenged some of our most basic assumptions about race in America. And the film is White Like Me. You can go to On Demand at Vimeo.com and rent it for $4.99 if you would like to see it. And we'll talk more about that with him. He's joining us. Let me give you an idea about who he is. He is whom scholar and philosopher Cornell West, and our common ground voice, calls a vanilla brother in the tradition of abolitionist John Brown. Tim Wise began his career as a youth coordinator and associate director of the Louisiana Coalition Against Racism and Nazism, the largest of the many groups organized in the early 90s to defeat the political candidacies of white supremacists David Duke. From there, he became a community organizer in New Orleans, public housing, and a pub policy analyst for a children's advocacy group focused on combating poverty and economic inequities. He has served as an adjunct professor at Smith College School of Social Work in Northampton, Massachusetts, and from 1999 to 2003 was an advisor to the Risk Fisk University Race Relations Institute in Nashville, Tennessee, when I met him first. He was a young scholar in that advisory role. He is the author of six books, including his highly acclaimed memoir, What Like Me, Reflections on Race from a Privileged Son, as well as Dear White America, Letter to a New Minority, and Colorblind, The Rise of Post-Racial Politics and the Retreat from Racial Equity. He appears regularly on CNN and NBC to discuss race issues and was featured in 2002 in a segment on 2020. He has been featured in several documents, White Like Me being one of them, one of the best, best films made on the unfinished quest for racial justice in America. Uh, most are saying about it. And he is working on a brand new book, Culture of Cruelty, How America's Elite Demonize the Poor, Valorize the Rich, and Jeopardize the Future, and it is expected to be released in early 2015, and we'll be talking with him about that. Our number is 347-838-9852. I'm going to be talking with Tim for uh, a few, and then we'll invite you 
to join us in this conversation. Tim Wise, thank you so very much for joining us here tonight at Our Common Ground. Oh, thank you for having me. Let's start off by looking at um, some recent events, and then I do want to talk to you about uh, white people, racism, and the Obama era. Um, <clears throat> but we have, over the past two years, seen what seems to be um, – uh, 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 circumstances under which black people are asking the question, what in the hell is wrong with these white people? These white people have lost their minds. The mm-hmm. black president has just made them go totally unhinged. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we know that that's talking about a certain population of white people. But I think that while black people are seeing what they have feared for many, many years. And some of them, like me, who grew up in the Jim Crow South, are seeing what we already saw and already knew. As you do your work, and you do very important work, in my opinion, how is white America adjusting to this new racialized America? Well, not very not very well, <laughs> I would say. Um, not in a very productive manner. Uh, you know, I, this is really sort of the whole thesis of, of my last book, Dear White America, and I think, you know, even though it's been out for about two years almost now, I feel like the, you know, the arguments that I was making then, which were to some extent theoretical, analytical, speculative, uh, I think are becoming more and more apparently true um, since the time that I wrote the book. I mean, in in that book, I essentially asked that question, sort of what's wrong with this very large segment, as you said, not all white folks, but an awfully large number of white folks who seem to be, uh, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, losing their their mind. And I do point out the the relevance of the the black president to that. I think that's part of it, but I think it's only about one fourth of it. And I'm not sure that it's the biggest part. I think it's the combination of having a black president and then the other three things. And I'll talk very quickly about what those are. So yes, on the one hand, having an African American president, but not just an African American president, an African American president with a you know an exotic name and an exotic history, you know, grew up in Hawaii, which I think for a lot of white people is just a tourist destination. I'm not sure most white folks even know that's a state yet. Um, You know, so you have a black guy who grows up uh, in Hawaii. He spent part of his childhood abroad. You know, it's a very sort of exotic thing. And I think in that regard, and I'm putting exotic in quotes there, I think for a lot of white folks, it's not just that he's black, it's that he has this biography that's just really foreign to us. In fact, Rush Limbaugh used that kind of phraseology at one point. He said, you know, the problem with Barack Obama is he doesn't have a normal, typical Midwestern American story, you know, as if everybody in America is from the Midwest like him. Um, so that's part of it. It's this it's this uh, image of the president that challenges white folks or some white folks' idea of who the leader is supposed to be. Um, but there are three other things. The second one, and I'm not putting these in any particular order of importance, but I think they're all important. The second 
is the fact that it just so happens at the time that this president became president, we were experiencing the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. And unlike previous downturns, let's say in the early 1980s or other recessions, this one hit a lot of white folks. You know, the, the, the double-digit unemployment that white Americans began to experience in some communities around 2008, 2009. Um, that's not really new for black folks. It's not new for Latino folk. It's not new for our indigenous brothers and sisters. But for white Americans, it really hasn't been double-digit unemployment in any recession going all the way back to the Great Depression. So we've had three generations, roughly 75 or 80 years, where white folks didn't have that level of economic insecurity. So now you've got a black president that's challenging the image of America. You've got an economy that you can't count on. So that's two things. The third thing, um, which I think is sometimes underappreciated, is the popular culture shift. The fact that now we're living in a popular culture, the daily representation of America to the world, that is thoroughly multicultural, from the food we eat to the music we listen to, to the fashion, to the pop culture icons. And this is a big deal. People sometimes don't realize what a big deal it is. But, you know, you and I both remember, and, and anyone really over probably the age of, I don't know, 30, 35 certainly remembers, that it wasn't that long ago um, in, in real year terms that MTV wouldn't even play videos by black artists. You know, you remember that time when it was pretty much just Michael Jackson and maybe one or two videos by Prince. But for the most part, right, black folks were, were even though they were central to the development of popular culture, they were not visible. And so in a quarter century, um, now we have a thoroughly multicultural pop culture. And so you've got that challenging the culture of what America means, which again, for a lot of people, when you've come to assume that the culture is you and you are the culture and all of a sudden you're having to share that designation with other people, you can imagine that for some folks that's a bridge too far. So now you've got black president, you've got a declining economy, you've got a popular culture that's shifting and becoming less white. And then of course the big one I think is the, the overall shifting demographics of the country. So we all know within 30 years, half the country will be folks of color, half will be white shortly after that whites will become a quote-unquote minority or at least the plurality of the population. So imagine what that means for an awful lot of white folks who have been able to say, not only am I an American, but by God, I am what an American means. I mean, white folks have been able to assume that we're the floor model, right, that we're the prototype of what an American is. And so now, if we're having to share the very designation of our country with other people, my God, what do you mean? And, you know, James Baldwin said this many years ago, too, that this has never been a white country, but white Americans have had the luxury of believing that it was, and we don't really have that luxury anymore. So what is happening, for those of us who have done a lot of work around the issue of white privilege, you know, the old line was that being white means never having to think about it. Well, that may have been a truism. Uh, in previous generations. But what's interesting is all of a sudden white Americans are maybe for the first time having to actually think about what our race means. It's being made visible to us, and we don't much like that. We much preferred when our racial identity flew under the radar and only those other people had a race and we could just be generic Americans. What we're finding out is that that doesn't work anymore. And so I think for a lot of white folks, um, not being prepared for that shift, having become so addicted to the invisibility of whiteness. Now, it was never invisible to people of color, but it was invisible to us. We didn't have to think about it. Getting so used to that invisibility means that when all of a sudden it gets called out and we have the spotlight actually shown upon whiteness, 
and problematizing whiteness, not just saying, hey, there's this thing called whiteness, but saying there's this thing called whiteness, and it's actually a problem for a lot of people, uh, is shaking folks up. I think that's good. I think it's an important thing, uh, but I think it's something that we're also going to have to understand for a lot of white folks is going to create some real earthquakes and some real tremors, um, and we're seeing that right now. I think that's why you see the Tea Party saying, you know, I want my country back, you know, because to them, they feel that it's A, their country, and that B, they're losing it. Uh, both of those things speak to a mentality of entitlement, obviously. Um, but that's what we're seeing, and I think that's what we're, we're seeing in the streets, why police are, are so brutal and over-policing communities of color is that they're part of a dominant culture that sees itself under siege, under attack, lo- you know, losing their community, their way of life. I think an awful lot of cops are bought into that mentality, not all of them, obviously, but an awful lot of them. Um, and I think that's what's happening there. I think that explains a lot of our fears around the border, particularly the southern border, obviously, in terms of immigration. It explains a lot of the anti-Muslim bias uh, because, my God, it's not just brown folks. It's brown folks who, who pray differently and, and have different cultural traditions, right? So all of that's happening at once, and I think white folks are having to come to terms with the fact uh, that it isn't our country. It isn't our culture, that we don't make the rules anymore. We never should have, but we certainly don't now. Well, you know, you've been doing this work a long time. And by the way, I I just want to say to you how much I have appreciated since your first essay that I that I read. Oh my god, so many years ago, <laughs> you were still at Tulane. <laughs> right. Yeah. In a minute. Um, yeah. And 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 one of the things that for my generation why your work is so important, why I think that it's um, so useful and a significant contribution uh, to have a voice which speaks to the issue of white privilege in a way that you do because you are talking directly to white people. It just so happens that mostly most black people are listening to you, but white people are trying to figure out where that what what alienation you came from. <laughs> so, um one of the reasons that it's so important for my generation, for instance, I was um the I integrated a high school of 900 white students and white teachers. Mm. And I was there by myself for three very long years um, in a very affluent community. I graduated from Palm Beach High School. And during that period of time, I attended some white universities like Florida State University. I spent two summers during my high school year taking advanced classes at Florida State there was nobody that looked like me there, um, right. and um, and did a lot of things in terms of activities that high schoolers do uh, in an all-white environment. And during that time, I never heard anyone acknowledge that somehow my being there was different, and two that there was an effort to ensure that my presence was acknowledged and affirmed. So when you have this young white student coming along talking about, yes, I understand 
what that environment meant. It was very important to me, and I'm sure that for all of us that came during that time, uh, it was a new and very affirming kind of experience. But since that time, and since all of the years that you have been doing your outstanding anti-racism work, have you seen any shift in how white people have begun to think about their role in the race problems in America? Well, you know, as the, as the saying goes, it's not soup yet. You know, um, I, I don't think that all the ingredients have come together, uh, even within the white progressive uh, or even politically radical community to say that the shift or that the earth has, has shifted beneath our feet. But I will say, that in the you know 25 years roughly that I've been doing some form or another of, of anti-racism work in the last 20 of those on the road traveling around the country meeting you know really hundreds of thousands of young activists both of color and white aspiring allies I can say that a few things I'm noticing are I believe quite positive um, on the one hand I am seeing a resurrected not resurrected but a reinvigorated amount of activism and leadership on the part of young people of color. I mean, we're seeing that right now in the wake of these horrific uh, grand jury decisions in Ferguson and also in New York and really going back to Akron a few months ago when the grand jury did not indict the killer of John Crawford in the Walmart there. Um, you know, we've been seeing amazing activism led mostly by young folks of color. Uh, we've been seeing amazing activism led by a multi-generational group of, of persons of color, mostly over in North Carolina with the Moral Mondays movement, Reverend Barber and others. So I'm seeing some stuff that, to be honest with you, I wasn't seeing in the early and mid-90s and even the early 2000s. So I have to assume that there's some critical consciousness beginning to, to gel. And I, and I would imagine that part of that is just the natural ebb and flow of, of, of activism in any society. But I also think it has to do with the use of social media and the positive and constructive use of the Internet and, and the digital age. And I'm, I'm very cynical about the over-reliance on media, even alternative media. I'm very, I'm very cynical about social media, even though I make use of it, because I know that it can become a crutch and it can sometimes take the place of face-to-face -face organizing, relationship building, door-to-door -door stuff. But that said, I have to say that there's some amazing work being done to mobilize people in city after city after city and to spread these counter-hegemonic narratives um, that folks of color have been leading, whether it's as bloggers or as, as folks on social media or media commentators, creators of alternative content. So that's an, a really encouraging sign. And then the second thing is that I am seeing, uh, it's slow and it's certainly not sufficient, but I am seeing um, a shift in the willingness of white folks, particularly younger white folks, to engage uh, our privilege, not simply to acknowledge it in a sort of navel-gazing kind of way, which we all know is, is, is not adequate to the task, right? But, but acknowledging it in a way that tries to push other white folks who maybe aren't there yet to take some ownership over the inequities in the system that benefit us and then seek ways to work in concert with and in solidarity with people of color to turn that system around. That doesn't mean that we've come up with those answers, either the people of color or the white folks, but I'm seeing the conversation happening at a much higher level. I mean, even if you think about the terminology of, of white privilege, and, and no, it's not a perfect term, just like any term, it, it doesn't really describe the horrors of the system. It's far too innocent a term, frankly, but let's be honest, um, you know, 20 and 25 years ago, uh, or even if you think back to 
when you and I met probably 97 or 98 at Fisk at the Race Relations Institute. And that term then, you know, was, was starting to become popular in academics or penetrating the mainstream. You didn't hear folks in the mainstream using the term white mm-hmm. privilege. Uh, you didn't hear it on the media. And now all of a sudden, um, what's happening? Well, you're, you're seeing even people like, okay, so someone like Bill O'Reilly in the last month and a half has spent at least three different evenings on his show trying to debunk the idea of white privilege. Now, in order to debunk the idea of white privilege, you have to say the term white privilege, and you have to be threatened, frankly, by the concept of it, or you wouldn't even bother, right? I mean, let's be honest. Bill O'Reilly is not going to have a show next week where he gets up and says, I'm going to spend the next 15 minutes trying to debunk the existence of pterodactyls in Philadelphia, right? He's not going to do that because there's no reason. Everyone knows there are no pterodactyls or Tyrannosaurus rex uh, roaming around uh, the plains of Philadelphia or Central P or Birmingham or anywhere else. So the fact that he's spending time to actually try to disprove white privilege means he must think that this idea is gaining some traction. You've got, uh, you know, John Stewart doing shows where he's talking about the concept and challenging O'Reilly. You've got white comics like Louis C.K. talking about white privilege. All of a sudden, this conversation is becoming considerably more um, recognizable. You know, I can use the term on the road and people don't look at me like I'm speaking a foreign language. They may not like that I'm talking about it. They may not agree with my take on it, but they've heard the term and they nod rather than roll their eyes or look at me with a screwed up face and go, what are you talking about? So I don't know what that means. And I don't want to be naive and say that that means we're headed for the eradication of white supremacy in the next, you know, month, year, or or even 100 mm-hmm. years, but I can say that the narrative is shifting, however slowly, and that's how movements grow, and that's how change happens, and I think that, I can say concretely, is, is, has been happening in recent years. Mm-hmm. Now, just this week, you, you wrote a piece, and I read all of your essays, and um, you talked about something that we talk about a lot on this program, and that is uh, black people being serving in, historically as a moral compass in this co- in this country in regard to the issue of justice and democracy and liberty, but mm-hmm. at the same time, one of the things that I see and I hear on this program is that we try to legitimize um, moving toward a better, more open, more uh, available white um, society, Uh, white society in the sense that we try to reach out to white, nice white people. You know, everybody says to me, I I mean, I had a conversation in my own house this afternoon just about, oh, yeah, but there were some nice white people. Okay. Um, Right. Tell me about these nice white people. Talk for a minute before we start talking about you. Uh, talk for a minute about this piece that you wrote this week. We don't need nice. We need justice, racism, right. and the moral blindness of white America. Sure. Well, that's you know that's the that's the name of the piece that, as I as I titled it. Of course, it's now been on the web a couple places under, under different titles, but that is the original version. And if folks want to check that one out, it's at timwise.org, my my website. It's also available at BK Nation. It's available at uh, Alternate and a few other places. Um, the the premise of that piece, you know, I started out by you know this this interview that Chris Rock did earlier in the week has been sort of 
blown up virally. And he says some really interesting things, and I think some really valuable things in it. Um, but one of the things he said that sort of struck me, not because I think he meant it this way, but I think it could easily be interpreted this way, was he said, you know, the great thing is, uh, yeah, we got this problem with racism, and white folks have a long way to go, but, you know, America, this is Chris Rock speaking, America is now creating the nicest white people that it's ever created, and I hope that continues. And when he said that, I thought, well, you know, maybe, I don't know, I don't know how you gauge whether we're nicer or not, but the point I wanted to make was, I'm not really sure that matters, right? First of all, um, you can be nice and completely miss injustice. I'm sure that there are individuals uh, on the grand jury in uh, St. Louis County and on the grand jury uh, that was convened in Staten Island and the grand jury outside of Akron in the case with John Crawford. I'm sure there uh, are nice people on those grand juries, nice in the sense that they're kind to old ladies and animals and babies, uh, and they probably have taken soup to shut-ins and nursed sick animals back to health. They probably do secret Santa at their office. They're probably very kind and very nice, but what of it? Uh, they watched the murder of Eric Garner on video and saw no crime. They watched the murder of John Crawford in the Walmart and they saw no crime. Um, they were uh, exposed to four hours of leading testimony being fed to Darren Wilson uh, by a prosecutor whose job is to prosecute Darren Wilson, not be his defense attorney, and they saw no crime. It se seems to me that we can just take for granted people's niceness and, and still conclude, what of it? Like, that doesn't help us. And in fact, as I, as I argue in the piece, I think nice might be the problem. Because the, the thing about nice people, and I remember I started talking about this many years ago. I'd gone to Minnesota to speak. And you know, if you ever spent any time in Minnesota, you know they had this, this term, Minnesota nice. And white folks historically have loved this concept. They think it's the greatest thing. Ah, we're Minnesota nice. So great, you know. And yes, black and brown folks about Minnesota nice, and they just roll their eyes. They're like, oh, my God, Minnesota nice. Nice is killing us here, right? Because nice means what? It means that if you are feeling marginalized or not just feeling, being marginalized, you have to raise your voice above a whisper in order to get any traction, to get something done. So you have to protest. You have to raise your voice. You have to complain. You have to criticize. And when you do that in a, in a culture or a community that's so caught up with nice, so caught up with civility, outward civility, and outward pretense, what happens when you speak up? You get pegged as not nice. So now all of a sudden you're the problem, right? And so nice can be the enemy of justice because nice is quiet, nice is kind, nice does not judge, nice does not raise its voice. As I say in the piece, nice is an aromatherapy mask that you get at the day spa that lulls you to sleep with the beautiful smell of lavender. You know, it's like hot tea or a soothing massage. You know, it's, it's, it's Kenny G. It's, you know, it's smooth jazz, <laughs> real jazz, you know. And, and so, so um, I think this is our problem. We're so caught up with whether people are being nice that we're missing the fact that sometimes we need less nice and we need more anger and we need more mm -hmm. righteousness and we need mm -hmm. people who are willing to shout and to raise their voice. You know, we can, we can be nice when we have justice, but if we're being nice while we have injustice, I'm not really sure that's getting us where we need to be. Mm -hmm. and, and and that really is behind, and it's not just white people who uh, are silent uh, in a racist society who consider themselves good. It's also good black people who oh, sure. attempt to uh, bend to the moral measurement, character measurement of being nice so that they are not seen as outrageous, crazy-ass black people. Right. Um, 
and 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 it comes to why we have had people in our own community who in the face of such grave injustices as Crawford as Martin as Garner as Brown um call for us to be peaceful in our outrage. And we need right. to underscore that and understand that because struggle cannot come out of niceness. No, and it can't really. I mean, if we're being honest, and we're not usually as a country, but we might want to try it, um, we would have to acknowledge that really no change that has come about in this country that we take for granted, and when I say we now, I mean white folks, that white folks take for granted as having been positive for the country, came about nonviolently, frankly, came about without either violence or the threat of violence. First of all, there'd be no country mm-hmm. uh, in which mm-hmm. white people feel so comfortable in which we call home were it not mm-hmm. for violence. You know, George Washington was not a pacifist. Um, and the people who broke away from the British were not Buddhist monks who sat around chanting and doing Amkara. Like, these were people who believed in killing folks, and they killed a bloody lot of them uh, in order to form a country. If we think about the end of enslavement, it did not happen because white folks woke up one day and said, oh, my God, for the last 200 years, look what we've been doing to these uh, benighted Africans. We should probably stop this. No, it, it, it stopped not only because of the... Uh, in treaties of abolitionists, but it stopped because 600,000 people lost their lives in a war that was completely entirely about the system of enslavement. We had to actually kill brothers and sisters and kill each other in order to end that system. So violence was necessary to end that horrible system. And even if we think about we think about the uh, the things in the labor movement and the, and some of the protections that have been gained for workers. Of course, now they're they're being eroded by folks who want to get rid of them. But everything from the 40-hour week to the eight-hour day, to overtime, all of the things that we take for granted were the result of very militant labor actions, which oftentimes included violence, usually violence done against the strikers, usually violence done against the union, but even then it wasn't a peaceful uh, type of confrontation. And if we think about the civil rights movement, we have a very jaded view. Everybody has this sort of secular saint view of Dr. King and others as being these, you know, suffering, long-suffering, selfless individuals who just took punches and got beaten. But let's remember a couple of things. Number one, if it had not been for the violence of the state used against the non Nonviolent, white America probably wouldn't have woken up. I mean, think what would have happened, God forbid, to be honest, if, if Bull Connor had been smart enough to not be violent to the protesters in Birmingham. What if he had just sort of sat back and said, well, I don't know what's wrong with y'all, why y'all so upset, and just sat back and had a cup of coffee and let the kids march through Birmingham. And if, if uh, Donald Frank Cherry and the guys that you know bombed the church uh, hadn't done that, Right? What would have happened? Do you think white America would have would have seen the moral righteousness of the movement? I don't think they would have. I think white folks would have been, well, now this seems unreasonable. Why are they protesting? These cops don't seem so. In a way, even then, violence in this case against the movement was necessary in order to wake white people up. White folks don't respond to nonviolence; have never responded to nonviolence. And let's remember too that it was very clear to a lot of Southern folk during the anti-segregation, the the, the anti-racism movement. The 
civil rights struggle, that if they did not deal with Dr. King, if they did not deal with the SCLC, if they did not deal with SNCC, they were going to deal with Malcolm, and they were going to deal later with the Panthers, and they were going to deal later with a lot more militant folks at Deacons of Defense down in Louisiana. So I think even then the threat of violence was important for allowing the nonviolent movement to succeed. So we can sit here and have this naive Pollyanna view about the civil rights movement and how, gosh, why can't they do it like those folks did? But the only reason that you can have that view and say that the protesters today are so different from the protesters then is that you don't really know what the protesters then were doing. You don't really know what was happening behind the scenes, and you don't really appreciate not only how nonviolent the movement today actually is, but how the threat of violence always hung over the movement then, and that that, more than anything else, is what got white America to move even the few steps that it did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let me ask you, Tim, would you talk a little bit about your own life and how you examine your life in terms of the the U.S. of A. that you grew up in and how you have ingratiated yourself into this work? I mean, you have been doing that. I mean, I wouldn't take the bullshit you take. <laughs> that just wouldn't happen. <laughs> well, I mean, you, know. you have hung in there despite uh, a great deal of harassment and berating, and not only by white people and white supremacists and people like David Duke and Rush Limbaugh and Bill O'Reilly, because Bill O'Reilly really hates your ass, and this mm-hmm. other guy, there was another guy, Taylor, um what, he he really you know despises you and then on the other hand and and I I want you to talk about it in the talk about your life in the in 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 the framework of how you do this work I mean uh, I have heard black people literally just attack you and I'm saying, sure. what the hell? Yeah, <laughs> you know, well. Damn. Uh, what's a person got to do in order to demonstrate that they have stepped out of of a place that they could be in and step right. up to another place, to a better well, place? Yeah, you know, I, 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 I think I understand, I try to understand um, – uh, any criticism, particularly if it comes from someone who I who I consider to be ideologically and philosophically an ally. So if folks of color are critical, um, not right-wing folk of color, but anti-racist uh, folk of color, or if other anti-racist aspiring allies who are white are critical, I try to always hear what they have to say. I don't necessarily agree with what they have to say. Many times I disagree, but I try. If you know, I think if you're going to be an ally, you have to be open to being called out when you make mistakes because you're going to make mistakes and I've made them. And so on those times when I've been criticized for very specific things that I've said or done, I try to learn from those and I try to integrate those lessons into the work that I do. Now, there are other times when I think the critiques are more ad hominem. You know, they're just about me. Folks don't like me and I'm okay with that. You don't have to like me. Like I don't, I didn't get into this work to make friends. I didn't get into this work to have black folk like me or to have white folk like me. I don't really care, you know, I mean, I've always had a very small circle of friends anyway, so I don't need more. I'm good. I got a family. I got kids and a wife that love me. I'm good. Like, I don't need a lot of praise or any of that. I don't care. Um, 
I, you know, many years ago, I talk about this in my book, White Like Me. There was the very first place that I ever went to speak on the road when I got out on the quote unquote lecture circuit was Northeast Illinois in Chicago in 1995. And, um, and there was a, um, uh, there was a, a young white woman in the audience at one of the classrooms where I was speaking, and she said, you know, I really like to do this work you do. Uh, I really believe in what you're doing, but I'm so afraid, you know, I just don't know, like, if black people will accept me for doing it. And, and she said, how do black people respond to you? And I said, I don't know. You'd have to ask black people. Like, I, you know, I I work in black communities. I'm an organizer in public housing. And it's almost all black in Portland. So I said, you know, I got really good relationships with folk, but I can't speak for them. I can't tell you if they like me or not. And, and before I could go on, there was a young black woman in the back, you know, raised her hand, and she had a look on her face that told me she was getting ready to tell me exactly what black folk thought about me. And so I figured, okay, this would be an interesting moment. So I called her, called on her, and she said, oh, make no mistake, we hate you. We don't trust you, and we hate you. And now there were other black folk in the room that looked at her a little side-eyed, but, but I, I just sort of laughed. And, of course, the white girl in the front starts freaking out, right? She's like, see, that's what I mean. I, I'm afraid they're not going to like me. And I said, well, you know, here's the deal. And I, I addressed the young black woman. I said, I respect that you don't like me. I understand that you don't know me, so you certainly have no reason to trust me. And I don't blame you for not trusting me because my guess is getting at a whole lot of white men that you've met in your life that you have had any reason to trust. So I get it. Um, I said, having said that, you know, the reality is you don't have to like me because here's the deal. I didn't get into this work for you. And I'm not doing it for you. And there was this sort of strange silence that came over the room. Folks are sort of stunned by that because they think a lot of people make the assumption that those of us who are white and aspire to be allies are doing this work to save black people or to save folks of color, that we have this missionary mentality and that we're in it as this charitable thing. And I said, that's not really why I'm doing it. I said, my belief is, and I said this to this particular young black woman, I said, I believe that black and brown folks can liberate themselves from white supremacy with or without me. Now, I think it might be a little easier with allies, but I think ultimately y'all are going to do it with or without us. So I don't think you need me per se. Uh, I said, but that's okay. I said, I'm not doing it to to do the job for you because I think you're capable of doing the job. I'm doing the work because I believe white supremacy is a poison that poisons me. And I believe it poisons my family. And I believe it poisons my people in my community. And if I ever have children one day, of course, at that time I did not. Now I do. I think it's a poison that will poison them. I said, I'm doing this as a matter of self-help, y'all. This is not about saving other people. This is about trying to save white folks because what I had just come out of, keep in mind, in New Orleans doing the anti-David Duke work was a situation where the only reason that David Duke, this white supremacist neo-Nazi former Klan leader, the only reason he lost those races was because black folks saved us because white folks, six out of ten, went and voted for him uh, in the Senate race. Fifty-five out of a hundred went and voted for him for governor. So if it's up to white people, we got a Nazi in the U.S. Senate or in the governor's house mansion in, uh, in Baton Rouge. Black folks were nice enough to go save us. Um, but at some point, what I had to say to myself was, you know, we, we, it's not right for us to rely on other people to save us from ourselves. We always preach self-help to black folks. We love that. We preach self-help to people of color. Well, why can't you all get your stuff together and be responsible? And what I realized was we need to practice what we preach. Here we were. We need to do some self-help because if it's up to us, we're voting for a Nazi. So we had to save ourselves. I don't know. You know, black folks can save themselves from, from white supremacy. I'm not sure who saves white people from white supremacy unless it's us because it's certainly not 
people of color's job to do it. And so to me, you know, if people want to be critical of me, I, all constructive criticism is appreciated. But by constructive criticism, I mean the kind of criticism that starts off just like any other criticism of anyone else with the, with the understanding of someone's humanity and a willingness to work with that person. If, on the other hand, your attitude is, well, white allies are just BS and serve no role whatsoever, then cool, you can have that opinion, but we're probably not going to be able to work together, and I'm okay with that. You know, you got to do you, and i got to do me, and we all have to try to work together. But at the end of the day, um, you know, I think uh, most of the criticisms that I've received over the years have made me a better writer, a better thinker, a better scholar, a better educator, and I think a better person. So I'm good with it. You know, it's, it's uh, again, you know, my feeling is with all the anger and the hostility and death threats and everything else, at some point, you know, you just got to do the work. I mean, if people of color have to put up with a lot worse than that, who am I to – to, to cash it in because I got to deal with a few people on Twitter or, you know, email or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. you've got, you've mm-hmm. got to be, got to be a grown up and keep the, the big person pants on and, and, uh, you know, deal with it the way adults deal with it, I guess. You know? Well, you know, I work with in um, the work that pays the bills. Uh, I work with a great deal of young lawyers, people coming right out of law school, young white people yeah. who haven't had, an opportunity or ever been encouraged to think about um, who they are as white people. And one of the things that I do as being the boss is everybody who comes in my office who says they want to do civil rights legal work, um, Dear White America is required reading. Oh, great. Thank you. I have I a staff that. that says um, that that knows when they make mistakes, uh, they know what time it is. It's wise time. Wow. So uh, uh, because one of the things, one of the reasons that your work is so important and the dedication that you have put into this work is so important is because it's not my job to help white right. people figure out who they are as white people. That's right. I, I, That's right. I, 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 I this decided that many, many, many years ago, um, coming out of a white whiteness conference at 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 Harvard, and the only yeah. thing I got from that conference was that I got to to meet Neely Fuller Jr. <laughs> and I walked away from that conference. I was coming through Harvard Square, going to the train. I was saying, okay, this is not my job. Yeah, uh, right, Tim Wise, it's right. so good to have you with us tonight. We're going to take some calls, but it's the top of the hour, uh, at the top of the hour. And I want to take a break now. And I do want to hear you talk more about how you decided this is it. Okay. Because in the same way that you decided this is it about clarifying the issues of white privilege and race in this country. We need to be able, every one of us, I ask on this broadcast every Saturday night, what is your end game? We've got to decide how we get into the trenches. You're listening to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. We're going to take a break and come back into the second page of Our Common Ground at the top of the hour, talking with Tim Wise and taking your calls so that you can talk with him as well. Stay tuned. (laughs) 
Right, and so you have 50 examples, and none of it stuck to white folks. I'm not worried that if I wore a baseball cap backward for some strange reason at 44, I mean, it'd be weird. I probably ought to be pulled out and profiled for that. But I'm not worried that if I did that, that somehow it's going to stick to me. See, people of color understand there are consequences to color, and so color blindness, color muteness doesn't allow us to address that, right? Not just with regard to terrorism, with regard to a whole lot of stuff, and I'm going to come back to that point. But what I really want to talk about with you this evening is this notion that even when we do talk about race, because sometimes we do talk about it, a lot of times we avoid it, that was what I was saying a second ago, but a lot of times even when we do talk about it, we really sort of water it down to the point where we don't get to the core of the problem. So that's why the title of the talk is Beyond Diversity, because see, we do a lot of diversity talk. We've been doing that for a very long time. That's not real new, you know. Uh, colleges have been doing it for years. Corporations have been doing it for years. Community organizations, even churches and synagogues and mosques and all kinds of civic organizations have been talking about diversity and how we want to promote diversity and celebrate diversity and all that. We've been talking about that for years. But what does it mean? Because it seems to me that when a term of art becomes so common as the one known as diversity has become, there comes a point where you have to ask, what's the real meaning of that word? If it becomes so common that everybody can use it, even though we're not all on the same page about what needs to happen in regard to it, then that becomes a word that means everything and nothing at the same time. And I'm not real impressed by words that mean everything and nothing at the same time because it doesn't tell us much about where we need to go. And with regard to diversity, that's what's happened in this country. So it's one thing to talk about diversity. It's another thing to talk about justice and equity and what that looks like. They are not the same. What's the problem with the diversity focus, whether it's corporate America or colleges and universities or high schools or civic groups? Well, a couple of things. First of all, when we talk about diversity in the abstract, which is what we usually do, what we end up doing is putting all the focus and all the attention and therefore all the pressure and the spotlight on the other right? Those who were different than the norm, whatever the norm may be. So those who were different, we put the spotlight on them and we basically say, hey, we really want you to be part of our thing, right? But we never actually interrogate our thing. We just basically say, yeah, we want more brown faces in this space. We want more people like you to come and be part of us, but we're not going to ask questions about us. We're not going to actually interrogate the thing that we take for granted. We just want you to be more like us. And if you're willing to come and join our thing and be part of our thing but not change our thing, then we're cool with that. But that's not justice, and that's not equity, and that's not fairness. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. We now live in a nation where doctors destroy health, lawyers destroy justice, universities destroy knowledge, governments destroy freedom, the press destroys information, religion destroys morals. Our banks destroy the economy. The inability to defend on all of these fronts, be it voter suppression. And you can go down the line. You can go down the line. The Wizard of Oz is 70 years old. Today, if Dorothy were to encounter men with no brains, no heart, and no balls, she wouldn't be in Oz. She'd be in Congress. <laughs> Advanced Urban Progressive Political Talk Radio. It's the Alpha Show, only on TruthWorks Network. Your Fridays just got served. 
every Friday, he's all about politics. 10 p.m., TruthWorks Network. (laughs) Yes, this is Janice Graham. Did you say it's Media Matters? Oh, yes. India is moving her show to Tuesday nights at 11 p.m. It's going to be the I Declare Show Nighttime Edition. It begins on November 18th. Thank you for calling. And please spell the name I-N-D-I-A Declare. Real, raw, and right now. The I Declare Show. Moving its broadcast time and date. India is moving to Tuesday. The I Declare Late Night with India Declare on Blog Talk Radio. Coming November 18th, the I Declare Show, Tuesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern Time. Real, raw, and right now. India Declare, real, raw, and right now. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now back to our common ground. Tonight at our common ground, our guest tonight, we're in conversation with Tim Wise. He's the author of six books, including White Like Me, Reflections on Race from a Privileged Son, Dear White America, Letter to a New Minority, and Colorblind, The Rise of Post-Racial Politics and the Retreat from Racial Equity. We're looking forward to his new book, Culture of Cruelty, How America's Elite demonize the poor, valorize the rich, and jeopardize the future. It's going to be released in early 2015, and if you want to learn more about Tim Wise, you can go to timwise.org. You can follow him on Facebook, follow him on Twitter, and subscribe 
to his Facebook page, and we suggest that you do. It's good to have you all with us tonight, and we are just really so pleased to have Tim with us. And, Tim, thank you so much again for being with us. We've got a board of callers. But before we go to the callers, and callers 215-979-661-646, I see you all, and I'm coming right to you. But, Tim, talk just a few minutes before we go to the callers about the moment, that moment that you decided, this is it. This is the work I will spend doing for my lifetime. Well, to the extent there was a a moment, I think it's probably more of a slow process, but if there if there was a moment, it would have been um, again going back to those those days in the wake of the anti David Duke work um, ninety ninety one and and um, I've talked about this before. I think many of us who were involved in that work had a very similar thing happen to us. So there we were at the end of these two elections, the U.S. Senate race and the governor's race, both of which do could come so frighteningly close to winning, especially the Senate race. And in both cases, as I mentioned before, he got the majority of the white vote uh, in both of those elections. And I remember, at least for me, sitting there at the end of that you know, year and a half process and really having to think about what it meant um, uh, both for the country and what it meant about white people and what it meant for me that six out of ten white folks, people who check off the census box the same way that I do, um, had voted for a Nazi because I knew in my heart and I knew in my soul and in my brain I knew, of course, that six out of ten white people are not themselves Nazis. I know that six out of ten white people are not Klansmen and they're not overt white supremacists the way that David Duke is and was, but they were willing to vote for a guy who was all of those things. And so I had to sit and grapple with, you know, what does it mean that otherwise decent and like the term we used before, quote unquote, nice white people, you know, probably very kind to their children, don't kick the dog, you know, they can be sweet, very kind and take food to a shut in. But but at some point, you know, they were still willing to cast aside all of their other human decency and whatever else might be great about them as people and say to themselves, you know, I think I'm going to vote for that Nazi today. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, what, what does that mean for me? I mean, obviously it means that otherwise decent human beings can be sucked in to a racist mindset because of their lives, something they've experienced, the propaganda that they've heard. So that tells me that about white folks that were incredibly gullible um, in that mm-hmm. regard and can be twisted and manipulated. But what it meant for me as an individual was that I had a unique obligation as a white person and all white people of conscience do to challenge our brothers and sisters in the white community, because as you said, it's not your job to help white folks figure it out. And, and as I said, in Louisiana, it wasn't really black folks' job to save white people from the Nazi that we were prepared to put into office. Thank God they did it, mm-hmm. but it wasn't their job. And so in that moment, mm-hmm. I said to myself, this is what I've got to do, because you know I could have been arrogant about it and said to myself, well, I can't believe these horrible, stupid, white racists who voted for the Nazi. I'm sure glad I'm smarter than they are. But at the end of the day, I couldn't really be that arrogant or that smug because the only difference really between me and them, I mean, I guess there were two. One is I'm Jewish, so I knew not to vote for the Nazi because, you know, there is that. But in addition (laughs) to that, like the only other thing really about me, and even the Jewish part is just about how I was raised, um, is, is, you know, the only difference was I had a set of experiences and I had a family 
that I had not earned. I just got lucky to have the family that I had. I didn't do anything in a past life to deserve them or to deserve the friends or the mentors who had helped to shape me as a young person. So I had had one set of experiences, and those experiences and those family members and those friends and mentors moved me down a particular path. Well, the people who voted for David Duke um, had had a very different, obviously, a very different set of friends, a very different set of parents, a very different background, and they weren't to blame for that. They hadn't done anything in a past life to earn that really awful uh, trajectory, and that trajectory had moved them down a different path. So I couldn't really hate on them, and I couldn't really be smug about myself. I had to recognize that really I could have been them, and they could have been me. And so long as I realized that, I knew that I had work to do, and it couldn't be something that I did just on the weekends or in my spare time or if I had hours left at the end of the week and wasn't too tired from a normal job, that this had to be the work that I was going to do. You know, it's really important for people to think, and I hope all of you out there are thinking about the kind of synthesis that uh, Tim Wise just described. Because we all walk away from the big mouth at work. We all walk away from the big mouth up the street in in our neighborhoods that speak up and speak out. And they are always, many times, too often, left alone to be the big mouth and and the spokesperson. And everybody else benefits from the kind of work that they do but never really get behind them. And you know and you know the kind of people I'm talking about, the kind of people who will meet you out in the parking lot and say, Janice, I'm so glad you told so-and-so-and-so, blah, 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 uh, because he needed to be told what a racist he was, and he needed, be, he needed to understand his, his, his privilege and how he utilizes it. And I'm standing in the parking lot saying, but when I was saying those things, you didn't say and let me say. Okay, so so we need to synthesize who we are in in this work. I mean, my daughter recently in a very affluent Massachusetts uh, community decided that she would take her 13-year-old son, who is tall enough to look like he's 17, to the police department precinct where they live and have him meet and and introduce himself to every police officer that was available so that that police officer would see him as human and he wouldn't get get shot down in the streets in Milton, Massachusetts because some officer thought him a thug. And then she began to organize other black mothers in that community. Because it goes to one of the clips that I played about what you were saying, is that these are people who get triggered in their jobs, the police officers and the, and the firefighters, people who come into our communities who believe that they have some control over us and get triggered from all this other garbage that they have mm-hmm. accumulated throughout their lives. Yeah. So uh, I, I really I, – I can't – thank you enough for giving the the nice white people the tools that they need to become good white people. Um, you know, and that's what you do. Trying, <laughs> trying. I mean, you know, yeah, but it's I know, also, I know. It's also, it's, it's also about, about trying to just be better. Um, 
you know, myself, I don't ever want uh, it to seem as though it's about saying, well, here's the, you know, here are the good white folks, here are the bad white folks. I think the yeah. sick thing about this system is that all white folks, regardless of intentionality and, and personal goodness, are susceptible to and oftentimes get sucked into perpetuating and, and contributing to a system of white supremacy. And we got to always constantly relearn and get better at what it is we're doing. And I'm, I'm trying to do my part in that, exactly. but I'm also taking a lot of direction from other people. Yeah. Let's go to our phones. Our number is 347-838-9852 if you want to come up on Our Common Ground with Tim Wise. 215, thank you so much for holding. Uh, you're on thank the air. You. Hi. Good evening, both of you. Uh, my name is Theodosia Hall. I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And uh, hey, I'm Theodosia. the big mouth. Hi, how are you? And I'm also big mouth in the work environment. <laughs> so, you know your uh, mama just... told you. <laughs> oh, no, I know. I went to Bennett College. Who can blame me? I mean, I, I was just as how they raised me. Now, um, and I call myself the big mouth because and you're throwing out a, around a lot of terms that are, are really are going into what I want to talk about, uh, white privilege, and the good white people, because um, we have, I, I'm a teacher, and some of the white privilege, I think, has a lot to do with the fact that um, there are a very few African-American, well, a lot of African-American teachers were phased out with um, no child left behind, you know, due to lack of certification. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And then you have um, environments where they want to see more white faces in urban environments. So mm-hmm. um, they're brought in, and some, but sometimes they're brought in with not understanding the culture. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Theodosia, I got a thing, lot of callers. You got to get. To I got you. Wait a minute. Let me. Here, okay. this big thing that I learned about this conscious racism. So I want to ask you about this conscious racism is when, as a white teacher, I don't realize I'm teaching you what I think you need to know is the status quo. Not what. Not as what I would teach you if I thought you were really going to do this A, B, and C. How do we remedy this? How do I speak to my white coworker to help them understand if I think that's what they're practicing? Tim? Well, yeah, it's it's tricky. I mean, I think you know, first of all, we start talking about dealing with the subconscious and implicit biases of white teachers. Um, there are a couple things. I mean, the only way that's going to stop, it's not going to stop by having individual conversations with individual teachers about it, though I think we should try that. I think it's only going to stop when uh, the, the schools that are turning out our teachers, whether it's official teacher ed programs or alternative certification programs or you know things like Teach for America, God forbid, or whatever it is that's certifying a lot of, a lot of teachers, particularly white teachers who end up teaching in communities of color, is that they're going to have to require competence in this area in order to be licensed to teach. I mean, I don't think you should be able to step in a classroom until you have demonstrated competence in this kind of area. And by this kind of area, I mean that you're going to have to have some competence demonstrated when it comes to teaching in multicultural, anti-racist, anti-biased ways that you're going to have to understand the community you're going into. You're going to have to have connections to that community. I think ideally, to be honest, both for police and for teachers, I think that marginalized communities Mm -hmm 
whether it's economically or racially or both, should actually have the right of refusal when it comes to who can police their community and who can teach in the community. Now, we're a long way away from that, but until that time, we've got to reach out and say to those white teachers who are coming in, maybe with the best of intentions, but without the background, they are going to have to see themselves as students as much as they see themselves as teachers. And by that I mean they've got to be willing to sit down with the leaders of the community, the people who are in that community and who have been in that community. That includes the parents. It includes social workers. It includes ministers. It includes um, nonprofit organization leaders. And be prepared to do some professional development, not traditional professional development, which is about how do I teach math, how do I teach you know Spanish, whatever, but, but instead the kind of professional development that, that – teaches them about the children and the families that they're going to serve. And if they're not willing to do that, if they're not prepared to do that, if they're not going to take the time to do that, then they need to find another career and they need to be moved out immediately. And I think that that it's really about saying to teachers that you've got to show the students, if you're going to gain their trust, if you're going to gain their respect, which is what you're going to have to do if they're going to listen to you. Because I'm sorry, you send a, a white middle class, upper middle class teacher who's who has no connection to a, to a community of color, especially if it's a working class or lower-income community of color, the kids are not going to respect that teacher. They're going to know that that teacher has no idea who they are, that that teacher doesn't know anything about their lives. And the only way that a teacher can connect to those kids is to be as upfront about that as the kids are. Like, if I'm that teacher going into that room, I'm going to to make a joke of the fact that, that, yeah, you know, I'm clearly – don't know what the hell I'm doing here. Why am I here? What does it mean? Like, like seriously, why? Right. The kids are thinking it. The kids are already thinking it. And if I go in and am self-deprecating enough to acknowledge that, hey, you think I'm here to teach you something? You're here to teach me. We're here to teach mm. each other. If I can create a reciprocal relationship with the young people and with the families, then we can build mutual respect and we can fight bias and we can get equity out of those schools. But if I go in there as a prison warden, in my mind, if I go in there as a cop, if I go in there to keep order and control and a very top-down kind of approach, I'm not going to gain respect, nor should I gain respect. I should find a different job. Thank you very much. Well said. Well, we're glad to hear from you, but you know, I'd, I'd like to also add that one of the things that parents, uh, African-American parents and teachers can do in their own communities is to look at some of the people who have the resources, uh, much like uh, Tim Wise, um, uh, either in your colleges or nearby universities, Mm -hmm. who do this kind of work, and organize Saturday-friendly academies uh, Mm -hmm. and invite teachers and other parents to understand the issue of race. We've got to to do education at the neighborhood and community level so that people can become empowered to engage civically about school policy, uh, yeah. about school environments in our community. Right. That's yeah, that's the only way in which we're going to break uh, the whole and 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 alternatively empower our communities. Thank you so very much for your call. Thank we you. hope you'll we'll see you lots on Saturday night sure. at 10 p.m. Have a good evening. You too. Uh, 979, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. Uh, this is Tommy Curry. Hey, <clears throat> Dr. Curry, how are you? Tim Wise, I'm Dr. Good. Curry, a regular Our Common Ground voice. Very good. Uh, I have a question for you, Mr. Wise. Uh, you gave a brief history 
about the use of violence sustaining the nonviolent movement of the civil rights era. But in, in discussing your notions of white privilege, white supremacy, and lecturing to white people, it seems that the idea that you can even have a faith in the moral psychology of white people uh, is part of the structure of privilege. So when you talk about the possibilities of violence that sustain nonviolence, black men generally have to take on those those risks. So it seems that by suggesting that we can engage white people, that there are in fact moderate white people that exist despite the backlash of these right-wing white people, that black mm -hmm. people really become dichotomized. Because if any black person reacts with rage, especially if a black male reacts with rage, they're dichotomized as the angry black male and therefore necessarily have to be dealt with with death. So I'm right. curious to how you understand the relationship between the discourse of white privilege and the materialization right. of black death, given that white privilege presupposes an optimism of white people that black men generally historically haven't seen evidence of. Right, right. Well, I, I don't necessarily have a lot of optimism about the moral core of of white folks, not because I think as human beings we lack one, but I think we have a system that is predicated on wringing all conscious, uh, all conscience out of those persons called white, and it's done a spectacular job of wringing that conscience out of us. So I think it's not so much about whether there's a moral core to which appeals can be made, but I think if you look at the history, I think, you know, uh, Professor Derek Bell talked about this often uh, prior to his death, that every step forward, and he's not the only one who's talked about it, but every step forward uh, on the road toward justice, a very long road that we are nowhere near the end of, um, has always happened when there was some type of self-interest for white folks in moving forward. So as much as we'd like to believe, for instance, that the moral suasion of the civil rights movement is what changed America in a certain direction, we all know if we look at the history that it was just as much, and I didn't mention this before, but Dr. Bell talked about it, and I've talked about it many times. Uh, it was just as much the need to present an image to the world in the midst of the Cold War um, that if we did not, in fact, change this overtly white supremacist segregated society, that it was going to be very hard to win a propaganda war with the Soviet Union. And so, in a sense, there was what Dr. Bell called an interest convergence that allowed white folks with or without a moral core. Obviously, some have one and some don't, or we all do, but we don't always act on it, um, or we're led away from it. That interest convergence is what ultimately moved us even the two or three steps forward that we had. And I think what we're seeing now uh, is, is, is a possibility of having a similar conversation. I, for one, I mean, I would love, and I think most moral people, ethical people, would want um, us to be able to move forward, not only move forward, but do so for the right reasons, because justice is moral and injustice is immoral. But at the end of the day, I think we also realize that sometimes if you can get three or four steps forward, even for the wrong reasons, it's better than not doing that. And I think right now, for instance, one of the things that I think white allies or aspiring allies could be doing uh, when we are challenging other white folks Obviously, you make the moral case because it's ethically incumbent to do so, but I also think it's important to really start to talk about the practical consequences of inequality, both racial inequality, economic inequality, gender inequality. Whenever privileged people receive advantages from a system, whether that is white privilege, male privilege, class privilege, straight privilege, able-bodied privilege, etc., there are obvious upsides to that, and they're huge, and they are relative to those who were marginalized. They are massive, and we have to deal with them. But I do believe there are all 
also costs and consequences that come from systems of privilege. The first victims, of course, are those who do not have access to those privileges, but in the long run, those privileges can, can, can come back to haunt even those who have them. So when we think about white privilege, for instance, um, the problem with white privilege historically has been that it has taken white folks, including white folks who were economically quite uh, vulnerable and marginalized, and convinced them, as W.E.B. Du Bois said, of the psychological wage of their whiteness, allowing them to believe that they were better than others, even when they didn't have a pot to piss in, and even when they didn't have the shirt on their back actually owned by them, the idea was, well, you might not have much, but at least you're not black. And that mentality has allowed working class and struggling poor white folks to cast their lot with rich white people, maintaining an economic system that keeps them subordinated. Yes, it keeps them above the black and brown, but it keeps them at the bottom of an economic structure with very little security. So in some ways, white privilege trades the absolute for the relative. And I would suggest that there is a way to speak to, and I don't, I don't claim to know exactly how to do it, but I do believe that framing this issue as white supremacy and white privilege being a huge benefit, but with a massive consequence and a massive cost can begin to get certain white folks to recognize that there are limitations to how far white privilege can take them. The same is true with male privilege. I think male privilege has massive consequences for men in the sense that it requires of us a certain affect, a certain lack of emotionalism, a certain stuffing of all pain that actually is psychologically, physiologically very damaging to men. This idea that men feel that to be a man, you have to act a certain way, speak a certain way, interact a certain way, deal with women a certain way, and deal with other men a certain way, or else one will be seen as less than a man. This is all very taxing and very difficult and emotionally, physically, physiologically draining. And so I think there are ways for us, when we talk about male privilege and sexism, to appeal not only on the basis of how misogyny, patriarchy, rape culture, and sexism damage women, which is quite obvious and needs to be said over and over again, but how it also sets men up in a way that allows us to maybe potentially see some interest convergence. Now, I don't know that any of this will work, and I certainly don't know that it's enough or even remotely enough to eradicate systems of oppression like patriarchy or white supremacy, but I do think that it is a unique role that white folks can play. Obviously, it is not it makes no sense for people of color to spend a lot of time talking about how white supremacy damages white people. That would be an absurd thing for black and brown folks to spend much time on. But it is something that white folks can talk about in a way that would that would comport with what Dr. Bell was talking about in his life about this notion of interest convergence and would allow us to potentially be moved, not necessarily because of some moral or not necessarily because of moral suasion, but because of a recognition that systems of privilege, inequality, and oppression are not fundamentally sustainable forever. They simply cannot last without creating all kinds of social entropy. So I think both the threat of violence, uh, even, even what we were talking about it before, the threat of violence in the background, if things aren't made different, that is also a matter of interest convergence. I don't think that white folks were moved in the 60s, let's say, by the threat of violence from the Panthers or the threat of violence from, from Malcolm. Again, then I'm not saying that these were actually violent folks who were going to do anything, sure, violent, sure. but that was, that was the impression. I, I, I think that that fear was not, it didn't make white folks go, oh my God, they, they might get violent. Now I realize my whole moral core has been shaken, but I do think that it was a certain amount of interest convergence that said, you know what, we better do something or else cities are going to keep burning. And actually there was an interesting book several years ago, it was a little philosophically problematic, but it was this book about affirmative action um, called The Ironies of Affirmative Action by John David Scrintney. And it was not a particularly pro-affirmative action book, but one of the things he talked about in the book was how 
how really many of the programs, the efforts, um, the, the Great Society efforts, and a lot of the job initiatives and things that came really wouldn't have come had it not been for the urban rebellions of 65, 6, 7, and 8, and that it was only after those things that all of a sudden the government let loose with some of the money that began to make a difference. Now, we know those programs were defunded after 1973, 74 in many cases, but from 1965 until about 1974, it was having a massive impact. There was a one-third cut in the African-American poverty rate just in that nine or ten year period, in part because of things like model cities, in part because of various urban empowerment initiatives, and those would not have happened according to the historical data, but for not only the threat of violence, but the real perpetuation of violence that woke some people up to the fact that we better cut loose with some dough or things are going to get worse. It unfortunately took that. I would like to think that white folks had just said, wow, this is really horrible what has been happening to people of color, but it didn't happen that way. So I think that course, we have to have an appreciation of that, not to say that we necessarily want to see riots and urban uprisings and rebellions and destruction, but we have to always remember that at the end of the day, like you implied and said, you know, in your setup to, to my answer here, is that there isn't a whole lot of evidence of a core moral suasion possibility for people in this system who are in the dominant group. And if that is true, and I tend to believe that it is true, um, then we're going to have to work with these practical fears, concerns, and, and realities that equality is really the only chance that we have as a society to move forward. And inequality will work for white people up to a point. It's worked very well, but it's starting to break down. And I think we're seeing that even now. We're seeing the economic crisis that we're in because we have tolerated a system of inequality. And it works very well for the top 1%, and it always will. It works very well for the top one-tenth of 1%. But for the vast majority of the rest of us, I think we're starting to see the limits of it, and if we can talk more about that, then I think we have a chance to build solidarity. But those limitations presuppose that white people are moved by the change of their material conditions. In Bell's last books, when he's talking about gospel choirs as well as silent covenants, he suggests, quoting Baldwin, that there may be a psychological disposition, specifically one that's pure evil, inimical, and sexual, that desires the death of black people. So if that's the case, and he moves away from the economic theories, which you presuppose from racial remediation all the way through interest convergence, then don't we have a bigger problem? Don't we have yeah. an obsession that white bodies have to anti-black death? And that's the question I'm asking, that if white privilege presupposes a type of virtue in white people acknowledging that the material conditions are falling apart. What are we to believe that? Because Derek admits himself, poor white people have always sided with whiteness over their economic situation. So false consciousness doesn't simply become unwoven because of right. a rupture in the material situation. If that's yeah, that's very case, true. If that's the case, right. then we're dealing with a disposition that's psychologically and culturally rooted in seeing the black corpse and anti-black death, and this is the work that Frank Wilderson is doing. So how does white privilege then address that type of evil? How does it address that specific obsession with seeing the expiration of black people? And given that right. we've seen case after case where black men are specifically dying, then I'm curious to how the privilege discourse, especially when it takes into things like you know patriarchy or male privilege, how then does it address that specific vulnerability? Because we presuppose that these are categorical privileges, not privileges that are wrapped up in the expiration of people's lives. In other words, right. you have to be alive to exercise some type of privilege. If black men are predisposed to being dead, then how do we account for a privileged discourse that assumes that people are alive and actually existing and benefiting from these types of material privileges? Right. No, well, let me let me jump in here for a minute because I think one of the things that's missing in this in this conversation is that white privilege is supported by something, and right. that something very well may be 
simply as as simple as racial hatred. Right. Well, it could be, and I think that. I, and I look. I think that the that the very important point that you're raising with the question is um, one that that all of us who talk about and think about this this work need to grapple with quite directly, because I do believe that there are segments of um, the white society as conditioned and, and, and maintained in the United States and perhaps around the world for whom there is, in fact, this psychological damage that needs either consciously or subconsciously the death of the black and brown other. And I have no doubt that that is true for some. I have absolutely mm-hmm. no doubt that there is a will to genocide among many and there always has been, and there may be various psychological reasons for it. There may be various material reasons. Those two may dovetail. I think that it is also the case, however, that it is not possible, at least so far as I can tell, to ascribe to the larger white community writ large in the United States or the world one um, psychological motivation. I think whenever oh, we course, try to right, whenever we try to assume the, yeah. you know, that there are psychological motives, that will they may apply to some and not others. I think for those who need the death of the black and brown body, there will be very little that will change who they are, where they are, and what they need and what they think, uh, absent mass psychotherapy, which is not likely to happen, or until they actually suffer the fate that they are requiring of others. That is to say, they are going to have to face the real confrontation and possibility of their own death before there would be any chance of being woken from that particular psychological predisposition. So I'm, I'm starting with the assumption that we will not be able and I certainly will not be able, and the white privilege discourse will certainly not be able, and the interest convergence discourse that, that Derek Bell was talking about will not be able to shake those individuals who literally need the death of the black and brown other. But I do think that for those individuals who are not at that stage yet, and I say yet because I think there are different stages of, of the sickness, right, of whiteness. I think that most people, for instance, when they are born in a country that makes them white, they certainly don't start out with a psychological need for the death of the black and brown other they start out with their just like all of us with sort of these egocentric needs that we want you know we want what's best for us and then the society tells us what's best for us and they do it in very racialized terms and gendered terms and class terms and they they carve us up into these identities over time we come to have different needs and over time i believe there will be some in that group who will need the literal death of the other and there will be others um who don't necessarily think in those terms but who really like the idea and i've had these conversations with an awful lot of white folks who say things like, you know, they, they can they can intellectually recognize, for instance, the injustice of privilege, and they can intellectually recognize the injustice of inequality, police brutality, failing schools, all of these things. But they will say, without any sense of misgiving or irony, and they'll sometimes say it under their breath because it's almost as if they're ashamed of it, they will say something to the effect of, you know, God, but I just, I don't want to give up what I have, right? In other words, these are not people, these are not people who are jonesing for the death of other people, but these are people who are at this point inured to moving in a direction that would stop the death of those other people because they fear that, oh, my God, I'm going to have to really give up something. I don't know that I'm ready to do that. Well, I get that. That that makes sense to me. That is pathological as hell in a lot of ways, but I also think that that's somebody who can be dealt with in a far more rational way than the person who literally needs and has that death jones 
for other people. And so for that person, I think the conversation about interest convergence is a very real one because if I can say to that person, hey, you know what, I get that, I understand, none of us like to give up stuff that we've got, particularly if it's giving us an edge, but here's what I need you to know, and that is if you cling to those relative advantages that you feel you need, here are the things that you're going to suffer and that you're going to lose because if you're wrapped up in your notion of I need these things, if I can show you, and I don't know that I can, but I think it's worth the effort, if I can show you that there are other things that you frankly need more than the things that you think you need right now, then that person may have some hope of becoming an ally. I've always started with the assumption that the vast majority of white Americans will never, ever ally themselves with people of color to fight white supremacy, just like I've always started with the assumption that the vast majority of men will never actually step up to try to eradicate patriarchy, misogyny, or rape culture. I don't, however, believe that we need the majority. I don't even know that we need a large plurality. I think what we need is enough, and I don't know what enough is. It might be 20%. It might be 15%. It may be 10%. You know, as the country becomes less and less white, um, it doesn't mean, of course, that we're automatically going to have justice because folk of color can fight amongst one another, and the system of white supremacy is much stronger than the sum of its individual parts. We learned that in South Africa. We've learned that around the world. But I think that as people of color become a larger contingent of the country, if they are working together to build coalitions with one another, then the numbers of whites needed as allies will shrink quite dramatically. And so whether or not we can get the majority, whether or not we can get 30%, whether or not we can only get 15%, I mean, you know, I could start with the assumption right now that maybe only one out of 10 people uh, in the white community are really capable of making a break with the pathological norms of whiteness to join in true solidarity with people of color, but it just might be that that 10% will be sufficient working in concert with leaders of color to actually make a difference. I don't know that, but I have to right, assume that, that, that some are reachable, even if most are not. And, and even if I start with the assumption that most are not, um, mm. you know, the work is to try, is at the margins, you know, to try to change. Because most folks are just sort of hanging. You know, most people, let's be honest, uh, black, white, Latino, Asian, right, left, liberal, conservative, uh, American, or from any other country, generally speaking, are not mobilized as activists to make social change. Most folks just sort of go along with whatever's going on. And, and, and the, the bad thing about that is it makes making change harder. The good thing about that is if you have a hard group of people ready to move on justice, led by people of color in this instance, but with a group of white allies acting in solidarity, if the vast majority of folks are just sort of sitting on their ass not doing anything, then it might be possible to roll over them. I'd rather them, you know, if they're not down to be allies, I'd rather them be watching American Idol. I'd rather them watching, you know, be, be, be watching Miami CSI mm-hmm. and not doing anything and not mm-hmm. getting in the way. So, I mean, again, I don't know how change happens. I definitely agree with you that these discourses in and of themselves cannot suffice for everyone because mm-hmm. some people are simply immune to an appeal, whether it is a, a moral appeal or whether it is an interest convergence appeal, because they, as you said, and I, and I agree with you, have a real psychological or and or material need to see, and it could be conscious or subconscious, to, to see the death of the other so that they can, quote unquote, live. And all I can hope for is that there is there are enough people on this planet and in this country, and if not in this country, on the 
the planet to ensure that that group of individuals who, who so desperately need the death of the other lose. And I don't know how we make them lose, but I do know that we've got to be prepared to work with the ones who are not at that pathology level yet. And I have to believe that there's at least some amongst us who are not, at, who are not that far gone yet. Well, you know, another thing is that we need to interject into our strategic planning is that we've got to take the same language that we and understanding that we under that we use in looking at and analyzing police brutality and police killings in our community to the same kind of genocidal pathology that's going on in our Congress and the people who speak. For instance, this um, Ted Cruz man, he speaks of genocide against black and brown people every time he goes to a microphone. And we've got to say to him and challenge him as to whether black lives matter. Because I am really kind of tired of people saying black lives matter, and I want to know matter to who, who is important in forming policies which are killing black and brown people every day, causing black and brown children to go to bed hungry or go all weekend without food because they only get food on Mondays because the Congress has decided to choke the life out of poor people. But, but Janice, that's, that's the, I guess that's what, what my concern is, is how do these bodies add up? How do they play out in the minds of the oppressed? Do they disincentivize coalition? Do they disincentivize resistance? Right? We see, we see a young population rising up against Ferguson. We see certain groups of Americans rising up and protesting. But will that protest turn into resistance or revolution if needed? Because we're also fighting against a new militarized face. So I'm just curious on how the corpse, right? And I, I get what you're saying, Mr. Wise. I, I, I appreciate you know, the optimism and the realism in it. But at the same time, you know, they leave dead bodies lingering around exactly to scare people from challenging systems. And I guess right. the question is, in, tw- in the exactly. 21st century, do we have that type of courage, given that we see the adjustments of structures like a militarized police force, like the absorption of protest? They're letting people protest and expand that energy, right? When we study social right. movements, we see that these are the things that, that societies use to diffuse things. So the question right. is, can we sustain the anger? Are we going to have the type of courage? And do we see dead bodies as the inevitability of people who want to be politically active and courageous in an American empire? And I think those right. are the I aspects think at the that we have really level, we've got to at the local level, we've got to reframe what is a dead body. Well, I think there's no doubt that much as the whatever victories have been secured up to now, they have always uh, been secured only and, and, and exclusively because there have been individuals who have been martyred to that cause. I mean, you know, the reality mm-hmm. is that in the absence of the, of the dead bodies uh, that, that littered the fields of Gettysburg and elsewhere, the system of enslavement would have lasted quite a bit longer were it not for the dead, were it not for Emmett Till, uh, were it not for all of the martyrs of, of the civil rights struggle. I'm quite certain that what movement forward has happened since those days would not likely have happened. That is not to say, of course, that we hope for martyrs, and it is not to say that we hope for dead bodies, but I do believe that the only thing that has ever moved this country forward uh, has been that kind of, of, of 
visual reality about the evil of that system. And that's why I said earlier that, you know, I think that the great mistake, and I'm glad he made it, but the great mistake that Bull Connor made, the great mistake that Jim Clark made in Selma, the great mistake that Cecil Price uh, made in Philadelphia, Mississippi, uh, was to kill and to beat and to maim uh, those that they killed or beat or maimed because that confronted people, whether it was with the moral core or the practical reality of the contradictions and yeah. claims of the country. It, it confronted white America and lawmakers who I have no doubt were no more moral the day after they voted for the Voting Rights Act than they had been the day before. I know in the case of Lyndon Johnson, this is a man who had voted against anti-lynching legislation, so it certainly wasn't because he had found his moral core. What he found was himself afraid that his power was going to be uh, taken from him were he not to do something uh, in, in, in the direction of civil rights, and then he couched it with moral language, which I'm not altogether sure he completely bought, but whether he did or didn't, didn't matter. The fact is, it required the comeuppance with the contradiction for us to move yes. forward, and I have no doubt that that will be the case now. Now, whether this is sustainable, what we're seeing in the young people who are leading this new round of protest, I don't know, but I do know from the people that I meet, and I meet an awful lot of young activists, people of color and white aspiring allies, I sense a lack of fear in these young people that I haven't seen in my own generation of people. I'm, you know, in my mid forties now, I've, I was never that courageous. Very few of the activists that I knew in the eighties and nineties were that courageous. That's not to say there was never any courage involved. I mean, you know, you get death threats, you deal with that. It's frightening, but you move on. These are folks who every day are literally out in the streets and they are taking risks. I mean, and I'm, I'm thinking not only about the protesters after Ferguson and the Eric Garner decision, but also, uh, the young brown folk in, in, in the young Latino and Latina activists, Chicano and Chicana activists, many of them undocumented, who are out there fighting for their rights and fighting for for uh, uh, deferred action on, on on deportations or fighting for the Dream Act or fighting for the resurrection of La Raza studies in Tucson. Many of them who don't even have papers that would allow them legally to stay, they're they're risking deportation, the complete uh, usurpation exactly. of their of their current advantages, just to say this is what we believe in and we will put our lives and our livelihoods on the line to speak up for justice. That's an amazing amount of courage. And I do believe that when you see young people who are ready to fight and ready to lose an awful lot, including in some cases their lives, um, in order to stand up for a principle, that is something we haven't seen a lot of in this country uh, for the last, let's say, half century. And, and I, so I think in that regard, it's not that I'm naively optimistic, but I am uh, optimistic in the way that, that Janice mentioned at the outset with James Baldwin. Uh, you know, I've, I've put that quote up on my side, others have as well, that Baldwin was asked by Kenneth Clark in 1963 whether he was an optimist or a pessimist. You know, his first thing that he did was he took a drag on his cigarette and he said, well, I'm very sorry that you asked me that question, but since you asked it, I'm going to answer it. He said, um, you know, I guess uh, I have to be an optimist because I'm alive. And to not be an optimist or to be a pessimist is to conclude that life is an academic matter, and it isn't. And so long as we're drawing breath, we have to decide whether or not we're going to believe in the capacity of humans to do better or whether we're going to be, uh, you know, mired in cynicism to the point where we can't do it. Now, frankly, I'm cynical on a Tuesday, optimistic on a Wednesday, and cynical again on a Thursday. But we got to keep it in balance because otherwise there's very little point in us being here. And if we don't believe that we can do better, then we might as well just sort of check out. You know, I mean, there's an awful yeah. lot of pain to put up with if we don't think that we can get it right. Dr. Curry, thank you so much for stopping by at our coming yes, ground. Thank you know you, you are Appreciate always you. welcome. Uh, we're going to take one more call, Tim. Very okay. briefly, 646, thank you for your call. You're on the air with Tim Wise. 
Yes, how are you, um, Sister BJ? This is I'm good Brother there. Jay. How are you down there in the ATL? I, I, I'm no, I'm in New York. Oh, you're in New York. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Listen, I know I can't really speak on you, speak to you on this issue, but that's kind of crazy what your daughter did. Um, in regards to taking um, your, grand, your <laughs> grandson to the police station, I can't speak on it either because she's. I can't speak on it. That's really. That's but really. It, the point know, is, this is how desperate. This is how desperate that we are to try and protect our children. I understand. Right. I understand. But um, I understand. I have a question for 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 Mr. Mr. Wise. Very you know, quickly, um, Mr. Wise. Do you ever take into consideration that maybe white people have the right to perform and act and enjoy white privilege in this country since this is their country and that they are the ones who have made the laws and who have control of every facet of this country? I mean, to me, it's like when people get mad at... um. Mugabe over in Zimbabwe um, because he wants to remove white people from the land, you know what I mean, so that black people can have control of their own resources, you know what I mean? I think that's, in a sense, the same what America is doing here in this country. My issue is that I think the problem with most white people is they deal in a Faucet mentality. They like to turn it on and turn it off when it's convenient to them in regards to privilege. Just Let's like get you a have all of these white him. people. You know, let me finish the point. Like all these white people out here now who are protesting and, you know, standing up saying, well, it's wrong what's going on. But then a week later, after the sexiness of it is over, they go back to their enclaves and don't right. organize their own community. Yeah, well, that's very that's very true, and we certainly can see, you know, throughout history, there's been this sort of boom and bust cycle with white allies where, you know, they work at it for a while and then they fade away from it. And I think one of the reasons, uh, to be honest with you, as to why that happens um, at least for some, I mean, for some, it's just because they're getting their help on for a week and then they got to move on, right? So they're not doing it for the right reasons. But I think that one of the other things that has allowed white folks to turn it on and turn it off is goes back to something I was saying before, which is that I think if you come to this work as an ally or as an aspiring ally and you have a savior mentality, right, a, a missionary mentality, which I'm afraid a lot of folks do, at least at first. If you come in with that attitude that you're there to save folk, the thing about missionaries is, like, they want to get in and save you and get out, right, because the whole point is that you got more people to save, and you're just there to help people. And, and then when you realize, wait a minute, this is hard work. Like, this is not – you're not going to save people. They've been trying to save themselves for hundreds of years. They haven't figured it out yet, so you're not going to save them in a week or a month or five years 
years, and all of a sudden people get burned out because they find out that fighting racism is a lot harder than, than, than losing 20 pounds or harder than stopping a headache with a couple of aspirin. And so I think what we've got to do, those of us who are white doing ally building work, is we have to make this case that this is not about saving other people. This is about being in it for the long haul because white supremacy is damaging you as a white person. Obviously it's damaging folks of color, but if you're in it to save them, you, you need to find another hobby. If you're in it because you realize that white supremacy damages your humanity, compromises your well-being, compromises the well-being of your children, the important thing about that recognition is that you then don't have the luxury six months later of saying, damn, I'm tired now. Well, if your life is on the line, it doesn't matter if you're tired. If, if your children's lives are on the line, it doesn't matter if you're tired. And so for me, for instance, the reason that I've been able to, you know, to do this work for 25 years and 20 of it on the road without really ever getting burned out is because many years ago I came to recognize that this was about self-help. This wasn't about trying to save other people. So now when I take a break from the work or like, like right now I'm on break, I got about six weeks before I'll go back out and I'm going to spend that time with family and regenerate. It's going to be lovely. I'm sure. I'm sure I'll be writing, but I'll be taking a little bit of time off. But I'll tell you by the end of that five or six weeks, even with the writing I'll be doing and stuff like that, I will be very antsy because to me doing this work as tiring as it can be, as frustrating as it can be is also so necessary that I don't have the luxury of really taking a real break. And the only reason I have that mentality is because I know it's about me and it's about my children and it's about my family. And and so I think if white folks could get that piece that they wouldn't get burned out the same way because they, 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 you just wouldn't have the luxury. You wouldn't have the luxury of getting wrapped up in how difficult it is and how I'm going to go back into my enclave because at the end of the day you realize your, your life and your own well-being you know, is on the line. And I think you would agree that there are many black activists who have to come to that point and who do, and then there are people that we are going to have to pr provide the kind of education and understanding to get in engaged in this struggle for justice and democracy in this country to claim it as our own, as our personal own. Thank you for your call, and I'm glad to hear from you. We haven't heard from you in a while. Yeah, BJ, one last thing. Could you ask no, um, Mr. I, I don't have time is for there one anybody last else thing. doing the work he's doing? A lot of people are doing the work that he's doing. Okay, thank you. Yeah, there really are. And it's good to hear from you. Tim Wise, thank you so very much for joining us tonight. For those of you, oh, you who would like to learn more about him, it's timwise.org. And you can read his essays. There's an archive of years and years of essays. There's audio and video, uh, his calendar of appearances, and how you can purchase his many books. And my favorite, you know, it was really interesting. I had I had the people over here in my new house um, <laughs> trying to find the W book. I had all my books, and uh, I had to alphabetize the books and put them in boxes for the big move. Uh, right. We moved, um, we downsized and moved out of a home of 26 years, and that was just overwhelming. So um, yeah. I had them looking for the W book. Uh, <laughs> uh to today and i'm just so really glad to to reconnect with you um Absolutely. so very impressed at the perseverance that you put into this work and your understanding of your mission and thank you very much and i hope you'll come back 
I would love to do that. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was uh, Tim Wise, folks, uh, with us here tonight, and we're glad to have him with us. Let me tell you a little about, before we have to go, uh, what we're doing next week. Rev, uh, Dr. Raymond Wimbush is joining me as a co-host in closing out the the 2014 Black America a State of Emergency broadcast season. Our guest will be Ajumu Baraka. He is a human rights defender whose experience spans three decades of domestic and international education and activism. He's a veteran's grassroots organizer whose roots are in the black liberation movement and anti-apartheid and Central American solidarity struggles. You won't want to miss that program. Also, um, we want to ask you to join us on Facebook and Twitter at Janice OCG uh, and in your efforts to support this programming. I am so pleased to uh, have with us tonight moderating and running our chat room, and we thank her very much, the Our Common Ground uh, program Administrator L. Michelle Odom, L. Michelle Odom, uh, who is part of the team here. Do not forget that on Friday nights, the Alpha Show on TruthWorks Network. And um, we will be back here with Alpha talking about closing out his season as well, 10 p.m. on Friday night on TruthWorks Network. A big Thanks to all of you who joined us in our chat room and those all of you who shared our event on Facebook and retweeted our events on Twitter. Um, I just want to say one more word about my comrade who I miss so much, Damu Smith. Today would have been his 40 his 52nd birthday. He was gone much too soon, and his voice would have been so important to us at this time. We cannot afford to despair, and I hope that you will not. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you right back here on Our Common Ground, a space where we help to achieve black America. Thank you for joining us on Our Common Ground. Thanks to our callers, our listeners, and our supporters. And a special thanks to Tim Wise, who joined us tonight to look at white rage in America. And we thank him for the work that he does. Please join us next week when we meet with Amaju Baraka, a former executive director of the U.S. Human Rights Network, and with my co-host, Dr. Raymond A. Wimbush. I'm Janice Grant. Asking again, what is our end game? The whole world is wrong, it seems.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.